Well, uh, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Uh, yeah, I really do want to encourage you guys to check out that, uh, that taco truck. Uh, they got burritos today, and they look pretty solid. And so I saw a lot of happy people after the first service grabbing burritos and enjoying that. So we'd love for you to, to fellowship, grab a burrito, and uh, connect with us here at All Nations. Well, uh, we are continuing in our series uh, through Genesis, and if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to our passage today. We're going to dive right into God's Word, and uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 17. Uh, We'll be reading verses 1 to 14 together. Genesis 17, verses 1 to 14. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Uh, May God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Amen. Amen. Well, church, I am so glad we are finally here in chapter 17 uh, in our series through the life of Abraham, because now I can finally refer to him as Abraham and not Abram. Yeah. So for the first, for the first, you know, like six sermons in this series, it's all been Abram, 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 but it's my just natural pattern to call him Abraham. And so a couple of times I'm like, Abram, like I'm about to say Abraham, catch myself and just breathe or something like awkward. And so it's uh, really satisfying and relaxing for me just to say Abraham. And uh, anyhow, that was kind of dull. But um, before we dive into the text, uh, I just want to give a quick recap of Abraham's life. Um, if this is your first time here, it's never cool to jump into a series and it's like week five or six. You just don't know what's been going on. And so uh, let me just share with you a little bit of uh, what we've been learning in our series and what God's been doing in Abram, Abraham's life. So when he was 70 years old, uh, Abraham was living in a land called Ur. And he was there with his family and his father. And uh, God came to Abraham and he said, you go into a land that I'm going to show you, go to Canaan, 
uh, leave your family or whatever it might be and, and, and go. And Abraham heard it and he obeyed. And in fact, he got his whole family to go together. He's like, let's all go. Let's leave Ur and go to Canaan. And so they started marching, Abraham's 70 years old. But then they arrived to this place called Haran. And in Haran, like things were really good. They were flourishing, doing well financially and with health. And they just found a great place to live. And so they settled there, even though God told them to go to Canaan. And Abraham was 75 years old at this point. His father passes away. We're in Genesis 12. God comes to Abraham one more time. He's like, hey, Abraham, remember me. Remember how I told you to leave your family and go to Canaan. Well, let's try that one more time. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless the nations through you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham believed. And so he says, okay, let's go. And Abraham takes his family and he takes his nephew Lot and they start heading towards the promised land. And he's 75 years old. At this point, though, when he's 75, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they have no kids. They have no kids. He is supposed to be the father of many, but they have no children, no offspring, no progeny. And, um, and, and you know, God, but God promises him offspring. He promises to make him a great nation. He believes. So they start trekking out towards Canaan. Ten years pass. Ten years pass. And Abraham starts getting restless. It's pretty reasonable you know, God said, you're going to have a kid. You're kind of expecting nine months, right? Family's okay. God says, I'm going to give. That's nine months, maybe one year, three years. Ten years goes by for Abraham. They get restless. And so they take matters into their own hands. They take Sarah's slave servant named Hagar. And Sarah's like, you know what? This isn't working. And uh, why don't you try with Hagar? And uh, Hagar gets pregnant. Uh, they have a son, they name him Ishmael. They're like, okay, well, maybe this is the plan. You know, just a little bit of a detour, but, you know, still maybe. Uh, well, what we learned last week, as Pastor DC preached on this text, that didn't go too well. And that wasn't God's plan for Abraham and how to make him a great nation. God wasn't going to do it through a surrogate. He was going to give Abraham and Sarah a child of their own. Well, that was last week, and here we are now. Thirteen years have passed by. When Abraham fathered Ishmael, it was, he was 86 years old. So we started at 70, got to 75. Now at 86, 13 years passed. Abraham is now 99 years old. Sarah is 89. They still have no child. They're still living in tents, wandering through Canaan. Time is ticking. Trusting in God's promises isn't getting any easier, right? Abraham's kind of starting to convince himself. Well, I know God said it wasn't Ishmael, but I'm 99. Maybe it's got to be Ishmael. He's just convincing himself that his 13-year-old son Ishmael is going to be his heir. Uh, but God has different plans. And here we are in Genesis 17. God is, uh, we're continuing in our story. And in our message today, we're going to see how God continues to encourage Abraham to trust in his covenant promises. And we're going to see Abraham's faith and obedience in action, right? I like to unpack our message in two important questions. And first is, we're going to answer, why should Abraham continue to believe in the covenant of God, right? Why should he keep trusting God? He started at 70. I mean, they had some good moments. They've had some great blessings. God's come through in some key moments. And so that's been great, but it's been 29 years and all they have is like an illegitimate Ishmael, 
right? Not the son of Abraham and Sarah, it's Abraham and slave woman, Hagar. And Abraham very well could be like, dude, what has trusting God really done for me? Where has it gotten me? Well, here, God's gonna encourage and exhort and empower Abraham to keep trusting in him. And what we need to ask is, how does that happen? Because I think for a lot of us, we're waiting on things to happen in our lives. We've got prayer topics we've been lifting up to the Lord for a year, five years, 10 years, and we're wondering, God, when will you answer? And we need to know how can God encourage us to continue to believe in him and believe in our promises. The second thing we're gonna look at is, uh, what's the connection between circumcision and the covenant of God? Because right? at the end of our passage in chapter 17, I started saying circumcision and foreskins a lot. And it's kind of weird for me to just like keep saying that over and over. It was like circumcision, covenant, foreskins, circumcision, covenant, foreskins. Uh, what is the connection? Right? What's the connection there? And we're going to look at that because there's actually a very important theological and practical connection between circumcision and God as our God and the promises he's making to us. Well, why should Abraham continue to believe? 29 years, things aren't that great. Little restless, unanswered prayer. Why should he continue to believe? Well, before I answer this question, I want to try and connect us not only to the physical difficulties Abraham was facing, the fact that he was 99 years old and his wife was 89. I mean, that is challenging. That's, that's serious stuff. That's discouraging stuff. But I actually want to talk about the emotional struggles, the internal struggles that I believe Abraham was facing uh, as well. So his age and the elapsed time, yeah, that's a difficult cha uh, challenge to face. Last week, Pastor DC, he preached a great message on, um, on Genesis chapter 16. And this question, I thought it was like an amazing question. It was, you know, what should we do when it feels like our faith isn't getting us anywhere? Right? I was like, when, when we were talking in our staff meeting and he said, that's the main question. I was like, DC, that's like the question of the year. Right? What should we do when we feel like our faith isn't getting us anywhere? If you didn't hear that message, you can go to our website, www.allnationsla.org, and uh, it's posted there. Uh, you can hear it, and I hope it's a blessing and encouragement for you. Well, today is kind of part two of that. Part two of that, because Genesis 17 isn't like all the perfect answered prayers. How nice would it be if like every chapter, like, you know, the, you know, the plot perfectly Un unfolds and, and resolves. Well, Genesis chapter 17 is continuing in Abraham's struggle to believe, right? Abraham's struggle to believe and, and how will he continue to put his faith in God? So not only is time difficult, not only is his physical body against him as a 99-year-old man trying to have a child, there's something else that was difficult for Abraham and is, he had a source of embarrassment a source of shame, and it was actually his name. The fact that his name meant father of many. Do any of you guys here have a name that's a bit ironic or a bit embarrassing, right? I'm gonna share mine with you. My Korean name has plagued me my entire life. I hate telling people my Korean name. It's so embarrassing, but I'm gonna tell you guys. I'm gonna tell the internet world, all 40 people who listen on SoundCloud. Um, my Korean name um, is Pyongjin. And the people that, uh, some people smiled. The reason why is because it sounds like a curse word in Korean, which means moron and idiot, 
right? So every time, every time someone's like, oh, what's your Korean name? And I say, Pyongjin. They go, did you just say Pyong what? And I'm like, no, that's not funny. That's my name. It hurts me. So I'm like super anxious and, and super insecure about my Korean name. Um, it was really embarrassing. But you know what I thought? I was like, okay, my Korean name stinks, but my English name is awesome, right? Michael, that is a strong name, right? It's a good name. And, and I looked it up a long time ago and I found out it meant who is like God. And that was accurate. But the weird thing was I understood it the wrong way. I thought Michael meant like who is like God in the declarations, like in the declarative sense, like who is like God. I mean, if you think of Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, yes, they are like God-like figures, right? They've just rocked the basketball world, rocked the pop world. That is Michael. That's a strong name. Who is like God? Well, um, I was wrong. I was actually wrong. When I look deeper into the meaning of the name, it's not a declaration. It's actually rhetorical. It's rhetorical and ironic. It's not who is like God, but it's who is like God. And the answer is no one. No one. So my name was not me actually telling people, oh, Michael is like God. It's actually me telling everyone that I'm not like God. I'm not like God. And so for 35 years, I thought I had a strong name, but it's actually, I'm telling everyone I'm not like God and I'm full of flaws. And I thought that was pretty ironic. Well, Abram's name was ironic too, because Abram's name was father of many. And back then, people's names meant a lot. They either, when they heard your name, they already knew what it meant, or they were curious, and they'll ask you. It's very common. They would ask you, well, what does your name mean? And the moment he says, oh, Abram means the father of many, the natural question is, well, how many do you have? Three, five, six, a dozen? How many offspring? How many boys and girls do you have? And right there, Abraham has to say none. The father of many was the father of none. And how difficult and painful must that have been? Every time someone called his name, Abraham heard father of many. And he looks at his family, he's like, I got none. Every time he introduces himself to someone, he has to tell them, I am the father of many, but the father of none. To make matters even worse, in verse five, God tells Abram this. He says, no longer shall your name be called Abram. And I bet at the beginning of that, 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 that statement, Abram was probably like, oh my God, here, oh, this name that's been plaguing me for 99 years, you're gonna give me a new name, like, you know, Ezekiel or like Hezekiah, something cool, right? Not the father of many. God says, no, no longer shall your name be called Abram but your name shall be called Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's making it worse, right? Abraham must have been thinking, oh my gosh, this is crazy. You want me to change my name from the father of many to the father of nations when all I have is one single illegitimate son? How am I supposed to look people in the eye and say, my name is Abraham, the father of nations? Nations? Like what? Are you like some crazy king with a bunch of princes and tribes? He's like, no, no, no. I got one Ishmael, right? 
How embarrassing and difficult must that be for Abraham? Now, this is crazier, right? Imagine as a husband, you go to your wife and say, honey, I'm going to change my name. And Sarah's probably like, good, that name sucks, right? I'm tired of people making fun of us for having an ironic name, the father of many, but being the father of none. Good, I want to change my name too, because I don't want to be princess anymore. That's what Sarah meant. So she's probably like, hey, what are you going to change your name to? Abraham, father of nations. She's probably like, do you even know what that means? That is not what we are. And Abraham has to go to his servants and his friends, right? And his community and say, hey guys, I changed my name. Call me the father of nations. They're like, why? Right? Just increasing the embarrassment, increasing the shame. It's like me telling you guys, don't call me Pastor Mike. Call me Big Mike, right? All five foot seven of me, right? Big Mike. You're probably like, you don't know what that means or you're just trying to be ironic. But you know what Abraham did? He changed his name. He changed his name. He changed his name. He continued to trust in God despite that personal shame, despite that internal struggle that he faced, despite the fact that he looked at his own family and he had nothing to show for it but an illegitimate son. He said, okay, God, you want me to be the father of nations? I will believe you. I'll do it. We have to ask why. Why would he do that? All right? What's motivating Abraham to obey and trust? I mean, 29 years is a long time, right? 24 years to say, okay, God, you said I'm going to have a kid. Where is he? That is a long, long time. At some point, we would give up, wouldn't we? Be like, this Jehovah guy doesn't work. Yahweh, I'm going to try like Buddha or something like that. But Abraham keeps believing. We have to ask why. The answer is in two parts. The first answer is because God reminded Abraham who he was. In verse one, God comes to Abraham. It's been 13 years. We don't have any more dialogue or discourse in between Ishmael and now. 13 years has passed. God comes to Abraham. What are the first words that come out of God's mouth? I am God Almighty. That's what God says. It's been 13 years. Abraham is doubting. He's struggling to believe. God didn't say, hey, it's all good. He didn't say, don't worry, I got you. He didn't say, oh, I love you. God came to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. In the Hebrew, it meant El Shaddai. That's the, that, that was the name that God was using. And that meant that God was telling Abraham, I am a rock. You can stand on me. You can trust in me. He's saying, I am a mountain. I am strong. I am mighty. He was reminding Abraham that there's nothing that God cannot do, that nothing was impossible for El Shaddai. And so Abraham can depend on him. Abraham can trust in him. And church, we learn a very important thing from this. We learn that the knowledge of God, of who he is, must be foundational for us as we consider what it means to trust in him, okay? We don't begin our faith with the promises of God, okay? We don't begin, the promises of God are really, really important, but it cannot begin with just like, oh, God promises to forgive you. God promises to love you unconditionally. God promises to never leave or forsake you. Those promises can't be the foundation of our faith. 
the beginning of our faith need to be God and who he, he is. Is he mighty? Is he gracious? Is he loving? Is he worthy? We must put our faith in the person of God, not merely his promises. We must put our faith not just in the gifts of God, but in the giver, the giver himself. And so here, God is reminding Abraham and he's reminding us of who he is. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. Nothing is impossible for him. That's a good reason to keep trusting. That's a good reason to keep believing and following and hoping in God. Well, there's a second reason. There's a second reason why Abraham is able to follow God. God reminded him not only of who he was, but God also reminded him of what he would do. God said, I'm, I'm gonna make promises and I'm gonna perform for you. I'm gonna work for you. If you read verses one to nine, God dominates the conversation with his self-declarations. For any like grammarians or English majors, it's all first person, per, first person possessive. Personal, sorry about that. First person personal. Now I'm going crazy. It's I, right? <laughs> I, right? He's in the first person, right? It, he, he says it over and over again. He says, I am God Almighty. I have made you the father of nations. I will make you fruitful. I will establish my covenant. I will give you offspring and I will be their God, right? Over and over again, God's like, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do this for you. I'm gonna do this for your offspring. I'm gonna be your God. Do you see this church? Why should Abraham continue to believe? Why should he undergo embarrassment and shame? Why should he continue to live out of tents and travel throughout Canaan? Because God has promised to perform. God has promised to work. God has promised to provide. And this is the source of Abraham's faith. Not by assessing his own capability and deciding that, okay, this is reasonable. Okay. Abraham's faith was not like, okay, uh, I'm 99, Sarai's 89. Maybe if we, you know, get our ovulation, you know, just get the ovulation right and, and try harder and, 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 and be more intentional and whatever, take some Hebrew Viagra and, and it'll work, right? That's not what Abraham did. It wasn't a self-assessment. It wasn't an assessment of his resources. He looked to God. He reconsidered who God was. He reconsidered what God could do. And he understood that God was his only hope. That El Shaddai, God Almighty, was his only hope. Look with me at Romans 4, verses 18 to 21, where Paul writes of Abraham's faith. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. I love that. Since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Look at those words. I love those words. That Abraham was a man fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And he was a man fully convinced that he was as good as dead, right? I'm 99 years old. I'm as good as dead, right? My wife, as much as I love her, she's 89. She's as good as done, 
right? When it comes to her childbearing years, those are way, like way in the past, right? We in ourselves are hopeless. But Abraham gave glory to God. His faith did not waver because he believed that God was able to do what he promised. Church, do you believe? Do you believe that God is able to do what he has promised you, what he has promised us? See, church, this is so important for us to consider because it reminds us of the order of the Christian faith. There's an important sequence of events that the Bible lays out for us, how we follow God, how we experience God, how we are transformed, how we receive his favor. There's an order there. You see, God tells us who we are before we become it, okay? God tells us what he will accomplish for us before we experience it. Think about about Abraham. God said, I'm gonna make you a great nation. God said that over and over and over again before Abraham even had a child. God said, I'm gonna bless you before Abraham even had his own land, right? God made all of these promises. God said, I'm going to be your God. You are going to be my people. That was the initial declaration and promise of the covenant before Abraham even had his own like tribe. Are you fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised as Abraham was? And the problem for us, the reason why we don't experience this is that we think of God And we want to experience things the other way around. Not this declaration before action, right? Not this promise before experience. What we want is, I need to see it before I believe it. How many of you guys are like that? I need to see it before I believe it, okay? Or it's, it's, I need to feel it. Then I'll know I've received it. I think so many of us are like that. So many of us want that experience to precede our faith, right? And when we're like that, we're actually going contrary to what we see in scripture, contrary to the life of Abraham, contrary to the life of Paul, contrary to the promises that Jesus makes to us. Think about how you think, uh, approach forgiveness. When do you know you're forgiven? When do you know you've forgiven? Consider some heinous or difficult, troubling sin that you've experienced in your life. When did you know you were forgiven? For most of us, it was when I felt forgiven, when I felt a sense of peace, right? Or maybe I was at a retreat or a prayer meeting and I started crying and then I knew I was really sorry because I was crying, right? When does the Bible tell us that we are forgiven? The Bible tells us that Jesus paid for all of our sins 2,000 years ago on the cross, and we are forgiven the moment we place our trust and our faith and our confidence in him. Before we feel forgiven, the gospel tells us that if we believe in Jesus, we are forgiven. And yet we won't allow that forgiveness to be real until we feel it. We won't accept that truth, that declaration of forgiveness that God has offered to us until we feel something. Does that make sense? We have it backwards. We have it backwards. Let me give you another illustration. How do you know you are a son or a daughter of God? That's been in our Christian language very much recently. We sing about it, we pray about it, we celebrate it. How do you know you are truly a son 
or a daughter of God. And for so many of us, it's when I feel like I've experienced something, maybe something supernatural. Maybe I know I'm a son or a daughter of God when I feel really intimate and close to God. But if I feel far and if I'm, if I'm in sin or I, if I'm struggling or if I'm in a season of doubt, I can't really own that title. I don't feel like a son or a daughter. What does the Bible tell us? When are you a son? When are you a daughter? And the answer is the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Whether that was in junior high, high school, college, or last week, the moment you gave your life to Christ, regardless of how, how troubled you might be, how dysfunction, dysfunctional you or your family might be, you are a son and you are a daughter of God the moment you believe in Jesus. Not because you got the feels, not because you experienced something that made you really like, yeah, now I'm a son. See, the Christian life tells us who we are. And it call, God calls us to believe in his word, believe in his promises. And then God will make our faith become sight. God will make that promise a reality and a joy to us. The problem with you and I, we're like, oh, let me, let me taste it before. Let me see it before. Let me experience it before. Abraham is a wonderful pattern for how we are to experience God. Abraham is a wonderful encouragement for you and I to continue to believe in God, to hope in him, hope against hope, right? To continue to be unwavering in our trust in him. Well, what's the connection then between circumcision and the covenant of God, right? So we've talked about faith. We've talked about how God has revealed himself to Abraham, revealed his promises and just kept Abraham's hope and his faith anchored to his truth. Well, then now we talked about in the second half, all the circumcision and covenant and all of these actions. What's the deal here? Now, before I get to this question, I want to share three features about covenants, the covenants of God that come from a theologian by the name of James Boyce. And he just reminds us three important things to always remember when we think about the covenants. And the first one is this, they are unilateral. And this means one-sided. They are unilateral. And this means that the covenant of God comes from God alone. It's not a compromise or an agreement made between man and God. This wasn't Abraham and God just hashing it out in a tent, negotiating. When Noah and God made a covenant, they weren't like in the ark just saying, hey, like you give me this and I'll give you that. You do this and I'll do that. that that's not how the covenants were forged. They're unilateral. They all came from God. We see this clearly in, verses, uh, in the verses of chapter 17. The second thing we have to remember is that the covenants are eternal. They are eternal. Just as God is eternal, just as his word is eternal and unchanging, the terms of the covenant do not change either, right? So they're unilateral, they're eternal. And finally, we must remember that the covenants of God are gracious. If the promises of God depended on anything found in human beings, they would never have been established, okay? If covenants were about God looking at you, God looking at me, God looking at Abraham and Noah and David and saying, okay, you are the people I wanna work with, God would never have made that deal because we are double-minded. We are not trustworthy. I mean, David was a guy who committed murder all to cover up his adultery, right? God's not going to be like, oh, I want you to be like the king of kings, right? That's not, 
That's not what it's based on. But the covenants are gracious. That means unmerited favor. And we see that in Noah. We see that in David. And we see that here in Abraham. So they're unilateral, they're eternal, and they're gracious. Knowing these three things about covenants, we can now better understand what does it mean then for God to tell Abraham, keep my covenant? What does it mean for Abraham to keep God's covenant through the sign of circumcision? Well, first of all, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. If, when, uh, when the Bible says keep, it doesn't mean possess, okay? I know that's our general usage of the word. We think finders, wait, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? And so we're like, oh, okay, okay. Abram, Abram has to do this. He has to be circumcised to possess and obtain the covenant. That's not what it means, right? Then you would think, oh, that means like Abram can lose it. That means Abraham can wreck it, right? But that's not the case. Rather, it means to uphold, to keep. For Abraham to keep the covenant, it means to uphold it, to guard it, to fulfill it, right? So we must never go so far to say that the covenants of God depend on our work or our performance. Why? Because they're gracious, right? They're eternal, right? They're unilateral. They came from God. If it's all, if it's, if it's God's idea, God's initiative, who are we to ever undo the work of God? Who are we to frustrate the will of God? But let me balance this out as well, though. If you think, uh, or at the same time, we must never go so far as to say that God does everything and we do nothing. Okay? That's the flip side. Some people think, oh my gosh, I got to work and earn it and keep this covenant going. Other people say, oh, you know, it's all God, not me at all. That's not a right reading of the covenants either because when God told Abraham to go, what did he have to do? He had to go. He couldn't stay in Haran. He had to go into Canaan, right? When God said, Abraham, get circumcised. Abraham's like, I'm 99 years old. I'm not a baby. Are you sure? God said, yeah. Actually, he never had that conversation. Abraham just obeyed, right? And so there are stipulations of this covenant. There are things that Abraham must do in faith and obedience. So what's the key word? And the key word isn't work. It's not perform. For Abraham to keep the covenant, to uphold it, to guard it, he must respond to God in general, uh, genuine faith and trust. He has to respond to God with faith and trust to the covenant. Okay. So God commands Abraham in verses 10 to 11. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, we must not confuse the covenant with the sign, okay? So every covenant has content. It has stipulations. It has promises, right? And then every covenant also has signs that confirm it and follow after that. The heart of the covenant between God and Abraham is God telling Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the heart of the covenant. I know there's like land, there's blessings, there's a promise to bless all the nations through you, all that stuff. But at the core, the spirit of this covenant is, I'm gonna be your God, you're gonna be my people, right? The sign of this covenant is circumcision, okay? The sign of this covenant is circumcision. Let's do Noah as well. What was God's promise to Noah in the covenant God made to him? He promised he will never again destroy the earth through a flood, right? What was the sign? Because remember, rainbow, right? 
And that sign, the, the rainbow didn't make the promise. The rainbow confirmed the promise. And every time Israel was to look to the heavens right after a rain and see a rainbow, they should remember God's promise, God's faithfulness, the fact that God has not abandoned them, the fact that there is grace for God's people and God's creation. So that sign is always supposed to point back to the promise, to use a simpler illustration um, between a husband and wife. What's the heart of the covenant? Sex. Kidding. It's not sex. It's marriage. It's union. Between a husband and a wife, the heart of the covenant is the fact that they are united as one, that they will love one another and journey through life together till death do them part. What's the token? What's the symbol of the covenant? The ring, right? And some tokens are bigger than others, right? Some tokens are more expensive than others, but no one is more married than another married couple, right? No one's more married than the other person, even though the tokens can be different, whether it's, yeah, I don't need to go into the diamonds or anything like that. So it's very important that, that we understand that there's a difference between the sign and the covenant, right? You can't be unmarried just because you lose your ring, right? You're not less married just because you got a smaller ring or anything like that. Nonetheless, though the ring isn't the covenant, it's important. The ring is important to the covenant of marriage. Uh, single guys, not a good idea to, to propose to somebody without a ring, right? She's probably gonna say no, right? And uh, bigger the ring, bigger the odds, she'll say yes. No, I'm just kidding. That's a, that's a spiritual test. You should... Anyways, um, yeah, uh, I love, I love what James Boyce says, okay? I love what Boyce says again about God and why he required circumcision. Like, what's the meaning of circumcision? This is what he says. Abraham's obedience did not mean that he was contributing anything to the covenant. In fact, it meant the opposite. The cutting away of the flesh meant the renunciation of human effort, which arises of the flesh, and the willingness to bear about in the body the mark of an individual's identification with God. I loved that. I love that because um, I always thought too little of circumcision. I'm going to go ahead and say that. I always thought too little of it. I only thought of it as this like, okay, ethnic marker. It separated the Jews from all the other people. And that's why circumcision was important. It was a reminder that, that we are God's people and God is our God. And that's, that's it, right? But what Boyce is telling us is that there's actually something super profound and super powerful about the act of circumcision itself. What actually happened to Abraham the moment he got circumcised? The moment Ishmael, a 13-year-old boy who's probably going through puberty, experienced circumcision. The moment all of the men in Abraham's household were circumcised. You know what happened? They were bedridden, right? For days and weeks, these grown men became weaklings. I mean, Hertz even used the bathroom, right? And, and, and they became powerless, they became weak. You see, when Abraham was circumcised, he didn't contribute anything to the covenant. It was a reminder that this covenant, this relationship, this blessing was all of grace. And Abraham, despite being a rich and wealthy man, was still a man who was weak, weak in the flesh and desperately needed God. The sign of the covenant was not a symbol of strength. 
The sign of the covenant was not a symbol of achievement. Rather, it was a symbol of weakness. And it put Abram and all of his people in immediate dependence on God. You see that? And I think that's so important that for us to be God's people, for God to be our God, it's not by our works. In fact, it's by our weakness and dependence on him. So no, circumcision is not unimportant. It's very important. It's not equivalent to the covenant itself, but it's important because it reminds us of who God is. It reminds us of who we are and it reminds us of the nature of our relationship that we are a people dependent upon him. It was necessary for a Jewish man and God took it seriously. In verse 14, this is how serious God was about circumcision. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenants. In fact, in Exodus 4, Moses, after he has a son with his wife Zipporah, didn't have his son circumcised on the eighth day and Moses almost died, right? God was going to strike down and kill Moses because Moses didn't have his son circumcised. And Zipporah, his wife, was like, she was like brilliant, thought quickly, got a flint, circumcised her baby boy and Moses' life was spared. Why? Why would God take this so seriously, right? We know it's not about outward circumcision. It's all about circumcision of the heart. Why would God take this so seriously? Why? Because the symbol, the sign represented whether we trusted God or not. Refusing the sign was equivalent to refusing God and his covenant. Brothers, if you take a ring to your wife, a girl, and says, will you marry me? If she says no to the ring, what is she saying no to? You. Make sense? There is no, no ring. I want you, right? Man, that would be awesome. Return that thing, save a bunch of money, right? We say no to the sign. We say no to the covenant. That's why God said, no, this is important. You reject the covenant. You're not of the covenant, All right? So what does this mean for us? We're not gonna go and be like, oh, make sure all the guys here are circumcised. Thank God we live in a new era. We live under a new covenant because Jesus Christ came to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Scripture calls that the new covenant. And the best way for us to understand the new covenant, the covenant of Christ, is to see it as the ultimate fulfillment of all of the covenants in the Old Testament. So when we see Abraham and his covenant with God, Noah and his covenant with God, David and his covenant with God, all of those things should point to Jesus. They should point to the cross in which we should see and consider and ask, how is Jesus fulfilling all of those covenant promises? Well, for us, through the bloodshed work of Jesus, God has made us his people. Through the bloodshed work of Jesus, we have been adopted into his family. Through the bloodshed work of Jesus, we again can now cry out to our Father in heaven, Abba, Father, we know God through the gospel. And in the new covenant, there's a sign as well. It's not physical circumcision. It's baptism. It's baptism. Just as circumcision was the sign for Abraham, baptism is the sign for us. So let me ask you, if you call yourself a Christian, have you been baptized? And if you're refusing to be baptized, my fear for you is, are you refusing Jesus? 
because baptism is a symbol of forgiveness of sins. When the water washes over us, we were believing and we're declaring that Jesus Christ alone is able to wash us clean of our sins. Baptism is a symbol of the gospel because as, as uh, Jesus was buried and rose again through baptism, we confess our death and we experience the newness of life with Christ as well. Baptism, when we confirm it, when we stand before the congregation and we declare our faith in Christ, baptism reminds us that we have a new life, a new citizenship, a new identity, a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So brother, sister, are you baptized? And if not, why not? Paul makes this important connection between circumcision and baptism in Colossians 2. This is what he writes in verse 11. In him... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Right? What is Paul saying here? He's telling the Colossians, you have been circumcised. We all, if we're gonna be children of Abraham, right? We can sing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right? We can sing that song. If we want to be children of Abraham, we have to be circumcised, right? And Paul says, you've been circumcised, but not, not by the hands, not by the flesh, but the circumcision of Christ. And you would ask, when? Paul says, when you were buried with him in baptism. That's the connection here. We want to be the people of God, we want to be the offspring of Abraham. It's through Jesus Christ. And we make known and manifest that faith and reality through the sacrament of baptism. With a new covenant, there's something we need to do. And it's not just in your heart, like believe and pray the sinner's prayer. Jesus Christ calls us to be baptized, right? To be baptized in the Great Commission. And when we do that, we truly are claiming and announcing to our community and the world that Jesus is Lord of my life. Let me close with one scripture passage from Romans 2. Paul's still talking about circumcision, and now he's going to talk about our hearts. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but of God. See, Paul was a Pharisee who was radically converted by God and the gospel. And he became an apostle, a missionary for God. And he's critiquing his own people. And he says, my people, the Jews, have forgotten really what it means to be children of Abraham, to be a people of faith, to know what it means to be in covenant and have a relationship with him. My people are only concerned with the outwards. They're only concerned with, are you circumcised or not? Did you go to synagogue this Saturday? Did you obey the Sabbath, right? Did you follow all the laws? Did you do all of your tithing, right? And Paul is just like that. We've, we've got it wrong. Being a Jew isn't an outward thing. Circumcision wasn't an outward thing. It was inward and it was spiritual. Circumcision, as Paul says, was a matter of the heart. Well, church, has your heart been circumcised, right? 
Or are you just outwardly circumcised? Do we say we're Christian because we grew up in a Christian home? Do you say you're a Christian because you came to church? Because you serve in a small group? Because you went on missions one time in college for three weeks? Is that, are, are those the criteria, right? And Paul says, that's not what it's all about. God looks at your heart. And the moment, the moment we read that, I think most of us, we shrink. We get uncomfortable. Why? Because our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are corrupt, right? I mean, God says, no, he's like, Abraham, be blameless before me. Like none of us are blameless. All of us have corrupt hearts. All of us are double-minded people. And so when it's like, oh, God knows your heart. God looks at your heart. We're like, oh gosh. And we all feel like hypocrites. We're all, we all become self-condemning. Uh, I've had so many people come up to me when I preach on the heart and serving God, they'll be like, oh, Pastor Michael, I think I'm going to stop serving. And I'm like, oh, that's not the intent. Why? He goes, because my heart's not in the right place. When we look at our own hearts, we know how deceitful they are. And then we condemn ourselves, right? And we back away. We back away from God. We hide from him. We back away from community. We pull out of accountability. But what if there's a different way to look at it? What if as we see all, all of the sin, all of the darkness, all of the dysfunction in our hearts, as we see that, we know that God sees it too. And what if God knows it even better than you are? And what if God hates it even more than you do? But what if you believe that God sent his son to die for you? What if you believe that you know God knows every wretched thing in your heart and yet he still loves you with an unfailing, scandalous, sacrificial love? What if you allowed yourself to be loved by that, by that kind of God, forgiven by that kind of good news and that kind of gospel? Church, do you hear that today? God knows your heart. He sees your heart. And he wants to save you and love you and redeem you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who knows us so perfectly and so intimately. And we confess that too often we want to hide from that truth. Too often, we don't confess our sins because we're afraid that if we say them, then you'll know them. That if we confess them, that you'll be angry and disappointed with us. Lord, I pray that you would renew our, our hearts and our minds. Help us to see and understand how mighty, how majestic, how all-knowing, and all loving you truly are. Help us to rediscover the power of the gospel, the amazing news that God has loved us so much that he gave up his one and only beloved son, his one begotten son, to die on the cross for us in our place. God, we are your people. You are our God. 
we thank you for Jesus Christ who has made that reality so. In Jesus' name we pray.